very much. Well, good morning. Always a blessing for me to be with you, and um, uh, we've got so many friends here. Let's go ahead and take our Bibles, and let's go ahead and turn to Proverbs 29. And if you will, let's stand together out of respect for God's Word. While you're turning and getting ready to stand, once you catch on that everybody else is standing, then eventually... Um, but, but anyway, um, once you, while you're doing that, I appreciate those who have been praying for my wife. Uh, how many of you have known my wife was sick and you were praying on occasion at least four? Quite a few. And so, but we're, we're seeing some progress and uh, the Lord's opened up a door for us to come to Ocala, Florida for a month. So I'm going to be around for a month if you need your car washed, you need anything done. And um, I'm going to be around about a month. And I had three weeks in Washington State that got moved to later on the year. And it was just all moved before this opportunity came up. We've got a great doctor who's doing a lot of testing, and we've already made progress. So here uh, a month ago, we were told she had Lou Gehrig's, and that uh, get ready, it's not going to be an easy road. And then this week, we were told, no, it's not Lou Gehrig's. She just needs to quit eating too much pizza. No, that's not <laughs> it. She, she's got something else going on, but it's not... Uh, life-threatening like that. So I'm happy about that, at least not that we know of yet. So maybe next week we'll find out she has two days left and then we'll cry. But right now, things are looking positive. So I'm encouraged. So I told my wife yesterday, I said, you are the prettiest uh, handicapped lady I've ever seen in the world. All right, let's look at Proverbs chapter 29. And we're going to read verse 18 as our text, Proverbs 29 and verse 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Again, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Let's pray again for God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we do ask you, Lord, to use the gift of the evangelist in this local church today. We know, Lord, that there are many that come in and out, and pray, Lord, you'd use us all in your time and your way. We thank you, Lord, for the upcoming revival meeting, that that'll be a life-transforming church revival. And we pray, Lord, that you use today my opportunities with them toward that end as well. And we Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, and you can be seated. <clears throat> this verse is often used in a missions conference, and we can use it in a missions conference because if we don't have a vision for unsaved people and their souls, we will not minister to them. I've been able to go to a lot of places. Just recently, I was in Haiti. I want to remember they had 17 missionaries got kidnapped in Haiti in October. Well, all 17 of them got home. And you know, I was there the very day that they got kidnapped. I was in Haiti and I was at a roadblock and I was praying that I would not get kidnapped and I did not get kidnapped. But anyway, I've seen these places and we've got to have a vision. And if we don't, these people will die and they'll spend an eternity in hell. But this verse, when it talks about having a vision, 
it's not necessarily talking about a vision to try to reach unsaved people. It's a vision for keeping the law or obeying the Bible. Where there is no vision, the people perish, but in contrast, he that keepeth the law, happy is he. And the emphasis is not on soul winning, it's on keeping the word of God, the laws of God, the ways of God, the desires of God, the goals of God, and anything and everything to do with what God has revealed to us as important, as right, as wrong, as what he would have us to do with our lives. So if we don't have a vision, we are not going to stay at the pursuits of God, the lifestyle that he would have us to live, the faithfulness, etc. And so we've got to keep our vision for what it's all about, or else we will not keep the Christian life like it should be. Now, there are many people that are losing the vision. There are many people that are getting soft on sin, many people that are getting very soft on themselves, even when it comes to a simple, uh, I'm not trying to just put everybody into a legalistic box, but getting very soft on faithfulness to church. We are getting to where Sunday morning is enough in most people's minds, and only a few are any much more than that. And so what we've done is somehow we've lost our vision, and at the beginning of the year, I think it's a good time to get it back. And so let's go in and look at some simple reasons today why we get excited about God and want to stay excited about God and want to live for the Lord. Very simple outline, but the first reason that I want to remind us of for what this thing is all about is Jesus Christ, amen? It's not about we want to look like we love Jesus, we love Him. We don't want to look like we are excited about Jesus, so we sing our hymns and we go to our church services and we say the right things. We want to really be excited about Jesus because there's much to be excited about with Jesus. And so we want it to be more than just surface. It needs to be from our heart a motivation. And one of this greatest motivations, or the greatest, is, of course, Jesus Christ himself. We do these things because he did those things. He died for us, so we live for him. Now take your Bibles, and I want you to turn to Amos chapter 8, please. And while you're turning to Amos chapter 8, I'm going to read a verse there in just a moment. I want to quote Psalm 97.10. So you find Amos chapter 8 and verse 11, and I'll read Psalm 97.10. It says, Ye that love the Lord hate evil. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. Now the principle from the verse that I just gave us while you're turning to Amos 8.11 is that love increases hate. I'll say that again, love increases hate. Now when I say love increases hate, how many of you say that makes sense to me? Would you raise your hand? How many say, I know you're right because you're Mike Pelletier, but it doesn't make sense. I don't quite get where you're going. Love increases hate. Anybody not quite understand? A few, okay. So let me explain. When I say love increases hate, it's very true. When I was first interested in dating my wife Becky at the time, she was dating another guy. I didn't know him, but I hated him. So now you follow, love does increase hate. 
The more that I loved my wife at the time, the less I liked my competition. I remember walking up to her and saying, why are you dating that guy? You're a preacher's daughter and he is a reprobate. I found out later he was a missionary. <laughs> now, it wouldn't have mattered who he was, though. I wouldn't have liked him because he was keeping who I loved away from me. And so the more that you love somebody, the less you like what takes them away from you. The more that you love your children, the less you're going to love a drug pusher that would harm them. The more that you love your wife, the less you're going to love a criminal that would harm her. And the more that you love God and the more that I love God, the less we're going to like the things that hurt God. And the more we're going to hate the things that hurt God. Now, some people say out of one side of their mouth, I love God. But then out of the other side of their mouth, they'll say that I love drinking a social drink. Now, there are some of you that are probably struggling through this, and I don't blame you. And the reason you're struggling through this is because a lot of self-declared Bible scholars have said Jesus turned the water into wine. And that Jesus would say, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and all of these things. And what is happening is we're dumbing down holiness. And we're almost making it look like you're a more mature Christian if you can handle this, that it's acceptable to drink wine. Jesus turned the water into wine. Now, this is not my message. This is not the important thing to me here today, that anybody in this room is drinking a can of beer or a glass of wine would stop. Therefore, I would have fixed the world. The thing that gets fixed is when we understand that God is holy as he ever was and things have not changed. And we fall in love with God enough that whether it's a can of beer or whether it's overeating, we don't want to do things that would hurt God. Now, when we look at this, if we would fall in love with Jesus, then it would take care of our sin problem. Ye that love the Lord, hate evil. You that love yourself, indulge in evil. Ye that love the Lord, don't want to do things that could possibly hurt Him. We that love ourselves, will try to get by as much as we possibly can without God killing us. And we are so wrapped up in ourselves, not so much in love with God, that we struggle with things as much and as clear as social drinking. Now, why would you say that is clear? I say it is clear because somebody says the illustration, Jesus turned the water into wine. Do you realize that they had a seven-day marriage feast? Now, do you think that Jesus would have been able to show up on the scene after seven days of indulging in as much wine as they could possibly indulge in, as much as they would want to indulge in, and say, hey, you boozers, I'll give you a little bit more wine, except I'll give you something that's even better. I'll guarantee you, if they had been drinking for seven days, they'd been all passed out, if it was that kind of drink. And what we're doing is we're getting so educated in our Christianity that we're not in love with Jesus, we're in love with ourselves. And we want to do what we can justify, and we even will call ourselves as spiritually more mature. Now, I think that we have to be very careful even when it comes to talking about standards of dress. A lot of times people say, well, if the dress uh, shorts are 
uh, uh, above the knee, then that's modest as long as it goes down to the knee. Some say, well, this should go below the knee. And some say, you can go two inches above the knee. And now we've got youth that are totally fed up with that. And I think I understand that, rightly, that that is something we have to be careful about. But I will say what youth are doing today and what some enlightened Christian men are doing today is saying all that is is legalism. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And yes, he does. If the heart is what it should be, the heart will not want to do things that offend God. And nobody can be sure that if it touches the knee here, this is okay. If it goes below the knee, it's okay. But God has made it very clear that God wants it to be modest, and everybody knows that this is short. And what we're fighting over is not really an honest thing. Now, if we would fall in love with God, there would be more of a desire to let's go ahead and obey God. Let's go ahead and see what God would want us to do. And let's be honest. Let's be careful. Let's go a little bit above just to make sure that we show God that we love him with all of our heart and that we genuinely do love him with all of our heart. We're not just trying to pretend or convince him we have a love for God with all our heart. And when we fall in love with God, it'll take care of 90% of the sin problem. Now, I've been rambling a little bit here, but here's what I want to do. Let's look at Amos chapter 8 and verse 11. Amos 8 and verse 11. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will send a famine into the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. Now, when we think of a famine, we think of lack of something, typically a lack of food. But in this verse, it's a lack of hearing the word of God. It's a lack of hearing it. It's not a lack of preaching. It's a lack of receiving it. Now, we have plenty of preaching that goes on, but we don't always receive it. We have preaching that goes on and people hear it, but they don't hear it in their heart. Now, there are two ways we can hear something. Number one, we can hear it in our head or two in our heart. You're familiar with that concept. Hearing it in your head, it's just a fact. Hearing it in your heart, it'll change your behavior. Now, on the bottom of a cigarette carton, it says, warning, Surgeon General says smoking causes what? And every American believes that, but watch me, they don't believe it. They believe it in their head, but not in their heart. If they believed it in their heart, they wouldn't smoke because nobody wants to get cancer. Now, a heart belief will make a person change his behavior and give up the cigarette smoking. Now, we've heard about Jesus since we were little, and we say that's why we serve him. He died on the cross for our sins. He shed his blood so we could go to heaven, and he did. And we do believe this, but I think sometimes it's up in the head again, but we got to get it back down in the heart again. So we're going to talk about Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. If we understand what he did, we'll love him. We love him because he first loved us. Now we know what he did. We tell others what he did, but we have got to make sure that we're hearing it in our hearts. 
Now let's take our Bibles and turn over to Mark chapter 15, and we're going to read about the crucifixion of Christ, Mark 15, and we're going to try to do something. We're going to try to hear it in our heart, even though we've heard it since we were kids. We've taught it since we were Sunday school teachers. We think about it every once in a while, but let's hear it in our heart, not just in our head, and it will do something to us. Mark 15, beginning at verse 15. And so Pilate, willing to contend the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away to the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns, put it about his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. Now, if I was to ask you what Jesus did for you, you'd say he died on the cross. It's true. But remember, he went through a whole lot more than just the cross in providing a salvation. First of all, not trying to be sacrilegious, but imagine yourself being God. And you're in heaven, and you're on the throne in heaven. Anything you want, the angels come and they give it to you. And you're surrounded by the beauty of heaven. And then leave heaven and come to this place, earth. How many of you, when you get to heaven, are going to want to come back to earth? Now that was the sacrifice right there. So Christ left heaven. Hear that in your head. You got the theology, but get it in your heart. You get your motivation. Now then he took on the form of a man. When he became a man, did he stop being God? No, but he limited himself to human body. Now that's like you and I going into a nursing home and finding somebody who cannot walk, cannot move, and changing bodies with him. Now he still was God, but he took on a lot of human limitations, got tired, got hungry and sick, and all of this came on him. Had to work, had to sweat, had to feel pain, and all of this because he did this, somehow became a man, he God became a man. He changed bodies from that divine body to a human body. Hear it in your heart. It'll do something to us. Now, then he went on doing good. He healed the hungry, raised the dead. You would have thought people would have loved him, but they backstabbed him. They hated him. Have you ever done something good for somebody and then they backstab you? This is what we did to Jesus. Then we crucified him. Now, before we crucified him, it wasn't exactly an easy road. First thing we did was we beat him with a cat of nine tails. Look at verse 15. And so Pilate, willing to contend the people, released Barabbas unto them, delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Now, <clears throat> scourging is referring to beating a man with a cat of nine tails. If you don't know what a cat of nine tails is, here's what you do to somebody if you want to do something mean. A cat of nine tails is a handle with nine leather strips. On the end of the leather strips are tied pieces of three or four inch long, sharp rock, bone, or metal. They would tie a man up, spread eagle through the air, sometimes one ring dangling in the air, and other times they would tie his body over um, something and tie his wrist to his ankles. Then the soldier would pull the cat of nine tails back with a mighty arm, 
and he would lash it across his back. When he did it, he would snap it, and when he would snap it, the leather would snap and shoot the bone rock and metal right into a man's back. Now, once it was in there, they would jerk it, and it would take nine tracks of flesh right across his back. Now, they would beat a man 13 times from the left side, 13 times from the right side, and 13 times down the center. And they would rip flesh this way, this way, this way to do a thorough job. After being beaten with the whip, the cat of nine tails, hear it in your heart. Christ's back would look like a piece of raw hamburger meat. So he comes to earth, he left heaven, came a man, exchanged the divine body for the human body, took our beating after all the good, and his back was a body of nothing but raw hamburger meat. Then they platted a crown of thorns. If you go to Israel today, the thorns in Israel are not little like our rose bushes, but they're up to six inches long. They're very sharp. You put them in a circle, put it on Christ's head, hit him on the head with a reed. Now when they hit him on the head with a reed, that's like hitting somebody on the head with a baseball bat. And just hitting somebody on the head with a baseball bat when Jesus could have at any moment called one angel that wiped out 185,000 people with a jaw of a donkey, what could he have done with one angel, let alone 10,000? But we've got to remember, this did happen, and it happened because of us, and it did happen. They beat him on the head, and when they did, in the heart, picture the thorns pushed against his skull. Picture the result of that, puncturing the skin, pushed against the skull, puncturing the skin, pushed against the skull. It would then go behind the skin. Now, hear it in your head. You say, okay, I know that. I've been in this stuff since I was a kid. I know that too. But what happens is we've got, we've got times when we... We just let it get into our theology instead of our hearts, right? Now, we're looking at what we want to be excited about Jesus for. The thing that we're getting refocused on. What are we going to do this year? How are we going to make this year a year of godliness? We've got to understand why we want to be godly. Now, then it says that they clothed him with purple. Now, how long was that robe on his back? We don't know, but maybe it had time to dry. If it turned into a scab, just before they crucified Christ, they ripped off his robe, they would have reopened all those wounds. I used to play soccer. I'd cut my knee. It would heal over. And then the next day I'd play soccer, I'd fall on the same knee and reopen it the second time. It's twice as painful the second time. Here Christ's back is drying up, and the blood is perhaps drying and the robe together. And before they crucify him, they rip off his robe, and they reopen all those wounds. Now the Bible then teaches other things. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. A Messianic prophecy, Psalm 22 and verse 14. Jesus said, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Now, why would Christ say, Psalm 22:14, I am poured out like water? 
If you put water into a round bowl, it'll take a circle, a, a round shape. If you put water into a triangle carton, it'll take the form of a triangle. Whatever you pour water in, it'll take that form. You pour water into a jar, it'll take the form of the jar. Whatever you pour it in, water has no form. Now, why did Jesus say, I am poured out like water? Keep reading Psalm twenty-two, fourteen, and let it hit your heart a little bit. Try to let your emotion get into it. Try to let a little feeling in it, because it should be a little feeling in it. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen: I am poured out like water. Why? All my bones are out of joint. All my bones are out of joint. All my bones out of joint. Now, what this points out to me is that when Christ was crucified, not only did he have the nails and the hands and the feet, not only did he have his back beaten, not only did he have his beard plucked out, that would be like my grabbing the hair on your head and just jerking it out. How much flesh would be torn with the hair? How much blood would be there? How deformed would you look? If somebody just ripped off the skin and ripped off your hair, they grabbed his beard and twisted it and plucked it out. Now, not only that, but the Bible says that his bones were pulled out of joint. I did not know that years ago. Now, there used to be a torture in Bible days. They'd tie a man's body to two different animals, and they would hit the animals, and they'd go in opposite directions and pull the body apart. It's not in the Bible, but his bones had to get pulled apart somehow. Some people think that Roman soldiers grabbed an arm, this arm, other Roman soldiers, that leg, that leg, and pulled and pulled and twisted till they popped his shoulder out of joint, popped the shoulder out of joint, popped that knee out of joint. And don't you think a Roman soldier know how to do that? And after doing that, then they nailed him to the cross. Now, verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaw. He was so thirsty, his tongue literally stuck to the roof of his mouth. And what did they give him to drink? Vinegar. Hear it in your head, you know it. Hear it in your heart and try to feel it and put the whole thing together. Leaving heaven, coming to this place, exchanging the divine body for a human body. Hear it in your heart. Becoming a man, a cripple, someone with pain, someone with all of this, having to eat, having to suffer. He went through that. Then, do good to people. And you know exactly the good people that you do good to are going to one day crucify you, but you do it anyway. Then they take you. They spit in your face. They plummet you in the face. Say, who hits you till your eyeballs are swollen? And then they tell you that you are not who you know you are. And then... They crucify it. First, let's beat him, cat of nine tails. Then let's pop his bones out of their sockets. That'll be good. And then let's nail him to the cross. Then put a crown of thorns, beat it down under the skin. And then he's so thirsty as he's there, and let's give him vinegar to drink. Now, verse 16, halfway through. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, the nails right through the hand and right through the foot, there's so much to think about. That's something that we know about. That's something that we know happened. And we think about it, but we don't think about it. Imagine if somebody did this, took three men, and they pulled my arm down, and I know what they're going to do, so I'm naturally going to try to pull away. He didn't, but I would. 
and they're holding and I'm trying to get away and then somebody takes a spike right in front of us all, puts it right there, right in front of us all, wouldn't we kind of be grossed out? Wouldn't we kind of shake inside as they hit the nail and it secured my arm to the wood? Wouldn't we kind of be affected? Wouldn't we want to turn our head? Then the other hand, and wouldn't we feel like, no, no, don't do it. And they do it again. And then they cross my feet and they nail it to the board. And wouldn't you think that would affect you? They pierced my hands and my feet. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now verse 17. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. Now how else could your bones stare on you unless they were protruding through your flesh? Now not one of Jesus' bones were broken. The Bible said that he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands shall they bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. So did he have a bone broken? No. But he could talk to his bones. They looked and stared upon him. So what I feel that means, my opinion, there were places where bones were, his bones were protruding through his flesh. My father-in-law tells a story about a man who had a line drive frozen rope down the right fielder line, saw the right fielder was sloughing, and he figured he could stretch a single into a double. He got to second base, watching the right fielder, he thought, well, I'm going for a triple. But watching the right fielder was a little lazy. He was running full bore, and he twisted his ankle on second base. And when he did, it twisted his knee, and he kept running. And by the time he got to third base, he was safe, but the bone in his leg had come right up through the skin of the knee. Now perhaps where Christ's bones were pulled apart, maybe where they were pulled apart at the elbow, snapped out of joint, snapped out of joint, popped out of joint, popped out of joint, knees popped out of joint, nailing the cross, and then they lift the huge cross piece up, dropping into the ground, came down, as preachers say, into that six-foot-deep hole, hits with a thud, the cross piece weighing 250-plus pounds, the long piece weighing much more, and taking all those Roman soldiers to lift it, to drop it, and it comes down quickly. And when it did, the jolt could have pushed bones through his skin. Maybe where the back was beaten with a cat of nine tails, you could see his skin. I don't know. Now, why did this happen? Take your Bibles and turn over to Isaiah 52. And Isaiah 52 sums up the crucifixion of Jesus. Isaiah 52, verse 14. As many as were astonished at thee, astonished means amazed beyond comprehension, Why were they amazed when they saw Jesus? His visage, meaning his face, was so marred, more than any man, and his form, more than the sons of men. Now Christ's face was marred more than any man. What does that mean? I think one of two things. One, it could mean his face was beaten so much that he was beaten more than any man had ever been physically beaten. 
I don't know. Or it could mean his face was beat up so much that he didn't even look human. That's more likely what it means. But just imagine, think about it. If I were beaten up here and my face was beaten so much, girls, that it was swollen, cut, bleeding, my skin was ripped apart because they grabbed the beard and pulled it off, my bones were out of joint, I had wood that I was secured to, my back was bleeding, gushing blood, the whole pool down here on the ground is blood, blood, blood everywhere, and blood down the wood, and you look at me, would it affect you? Now, more than any man, meaning his face, than his form, it says. Look at that, verse 14. And his form, more than the sons of men. The idea then, he was beaten in his body more than any man had ever been beaten, or else he was so beaten and deformed, he did not even look like a man. And that's likely what it means. Now, why did it happen? This is what we're here for. <clears throat> why was his back beaten till it looked like raw hamburger meat? Why did he let him pull his beard out? There had to be a reason. Well, he's starting a new religion. I can think a lot of better ways. Well, he's just trying to teach us to love our neighbor as herself. Jesus is a good man, but let's not get all excited about it. No, there are better ways to teach you to love your neighbor than have your face ripped off. Your bones pulled out of joint. Leave heaven when you're God. Better ways to show people to love somebody than the cross. Death. Now, why did it happen then? Why was Christ's back ripped off? Why did he have all this? Why did he take on the form of a man? Why did he take that paralyzed human body on compared to his divine body? Why did he go about doing good and the very people that he did good to would do this to him? And why did he let them nail him to the cross with the 10 to 12 inch railroad spike nails? And why did he die the worst death that probably man's ever died in Isaiah 52 because of Isaiah 53? Let's look at it and hear it in our heart, and let's say it together. Verse 5, let's read it together. But, out loud, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now let's replace a little, ver a little pronoun. <clears throat> Let's change he, not change that, let's change we to my, me. Let's change we to me. Let's change our to my. And let's read it that way in our heart because I need to. And so do you. All right, verse Five, but he, out loud, was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquity. The chastisement of my peace was upon him, and with his stripes I am healed. Now, 
we think sometimes how so many people need to hear about Jesus or they'll die, they'll spend an eternity in hell. And that's true. <clears throat> but I need to be hearing about Jesus so I stay motivated. And we need to be hearing about Jesus so we stay motivated. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And every one of us in this place, if we're in this place and we're saved in this place, it was because of Jesus. And anybody out there that's going to get any help, it's because of Jesus. And anything that is any good in any place, anything that is right, our purposes, our goals, Everything that we live for, that we're supposed to live for, is because of Jesus. Now, if he did not do these things, if it didn't really happen, then forget it and let's do our own things. But I just soon believe it's true because it is. And plus, I like it to be true because it is true. But I like it to be true because, and it is true, because now I can be going to heaven. And you can be going to heaven and they can be going to heaven. And when we understand that it's true, and I know it's true, and I like it's true, and it is true, but I like it's true because of this reason, even if it wasn't true, but it is true. I heard somebody say, if Jesus Christ really was not the Savior of the world, even if there was no heaven, if there was no hell, and that's okay, I shouldn't be saying it like that because it almost sounds like I'm making fun of preachers. But I would still want to live this life if there was no heaven and hell. Well, there is a heaven and a hell. There is salvation. And it is true. And that's what makes it so wonderful. But may I be a fool for just a moment and say, even if it wasn't true, I would want it to be true. And it is true. Because the purpose that he gives to me in life is so good. I like that I've got purpose. I like that a janitor can have as much purpose as any human being on earth now. I like that a preacher is not just a motivational speaker. But there's a purpose, there's a divine work that needs to be done by a divine act from the divine God, Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that because what we have is true, that Jesus really did die on the cross for us, that the housewife has as noble purpose for life as any man or any woman on earth. I'm thankful that because it's true, a Christian teenager can have a divine purpose in life. He told us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel and what he did because it's true, gives us a purpose to keep the law. When we say keep the law, everything this book says, including the commandments of what not to do and the commandments of what to do. And what he told us to do is go into all the world and preach the gospel. What he told us to do is pray without ceasing. What he told us to do was be therefore holy, for I the Lord am holy. Now, many people lose their purpose. And when you lose your purpose, you lose your commitment. 
But when you get your purpose back, you get your commitment back. And the purpose for why we do what we do first and foremost is Jesus Christ. It was Jesus 20 years ago. That's why you were so excited. It was Jesus when you first got saved. But I am here to remind us it still is Jesus. And we've got purpose. So let's do this. Now, here's what he wants. If you're here today and you're involved in some sin, you do not know why you should get right with God. You want to get right with God for a couple reasons. One, he chastens whom he loves. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is whom the father chasteneth not? Young man got away from God, and I tried to talk to him, and he said to me, Mike, the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season, right? I'm just going to live my season. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, God says there's pleasure in sin. I'm just going to have a little fun, and I'll get right with God later. I said, look, aren't you afraid of disobeying God? Well, he went out and said, I'm just going to live my season. Well, he went out and lived his season. He started going to the clubs, and he started drinking, got drunk. And one day after he got drunk, he got a mouthy and somebody got mad at him and they got in a fist fight and he lost. Well, afterwards, three guys came up to him and said, you want revenge on that guy who beat you up? He said, sure, what do we do? They took him over to their car and the back of the car were three rifles. They said, Dale, you get in the car and we'll drive over to the house of the guy who beat you up. And at midnight, you knock on his door and we'll blow holes in his house. Dale said, that'll get him. He got in the car, drove over, went up to knock on the door. The three young men who were working with him pulled out the, the rifles, and they, instead of aiming them at the house, they aimed them at Dale's back. They had set him up. He was still drunk. They were friends of the guy who beat him up, took him over to an abandoned home, and they put three rifle holes right in his back. Now, God was trying to get a hold of Dale. You say, how do you know it was God? Here's how I know. Dale lived. Now, you don't live through three rifle holes in your back unless it's God. Does that make sense? Now, somebody says, man, if God tried to get a hold of me that way, I wouldn't laugh. Dale had the three rifle holes in his back. My preacher went to visit him and said, Dale, God's trying to get a hold of you. You're ready to get right with God. And I wasn't there, but I was told that Dale laughed in my preacher's face. Now, some of you could be, don't want to make this my only thing, but I'm telling you, some of you younger adults are being influenced. I don't think too many of the people that are over 80 are being influenced, but some of you young adults are being influenced and you're in church, and you're in church because you want to be, most of you, and I'm not beating you, I'm encouraging you. Can you stand before Jesus Christ's cross with his beard ripped off, his face emaciated, his back bleeding, and seeing him as the body of divinity taking on the body of a human, bones snapped out of their sockets by a Roman soldier, nails in the hands and in the feet, and drink up a can of Budweiser? Can you really sit down at a table in a restaurant with a little glass of wine in front of him? And I think what's happening, girls, the culture is affecting you. 
let's get back to letting Christ affect you. Now then, some of you say, well, <clears throat> I would listen to God, and what I want you to understand is God's chastening hand is a reason for you to get rid of sin. Dale got punished. God punishes sin. So do not think you can sleep with someone you're not married to without God saying what he said and meaning it. Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge even if they're Christians. Don't think that you can drink wine when God said it is a mocker. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Don't think that it's okay to listen to any kind of song about sex that you want. Don't think that it's okay to watch anything, a TV show or movie that you want because you're an adult. And don't think that God oversees these things. Get out of sin. But why? Because you love God enough that you want to stop doing things that hurt Him. Now every time you do something that you shouldn't do, it's a test. Do I love him for what he did for me on the cross, or do I love myself? And I want to love God enough that I want to get rid of what's hurting him. If you're here today and you don't understand, there's a way of salvation. I tell you today, there is a way of salvation. He was wounded for our transgressions. Why was Christ's back ripped off? Why did he let him pull his beard out? Why did he let him beat him with the cat of nine tails? He was wounded for our transgressions. And this happened. So you evidently need a Savior. If you don't know that you're going to heaven, you understand what he went through, had to have a reason. And the reason he went through what he went through was because we are sinners. We need a Savior. Now let's put you in there. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. And so come to him. And so why do we want to do what we do? Why do we do what we do? Because we know what Christ did for us, can do for us. And it's not just what he did on the cross. It's the whole book, the peace, the joy, the guidance, the help, and every promise that he gave us from this book. It's all true. And he bought it by that suffering on that cross for us. And we want other people to have it. That's why we do what we do. So you get the vision and you keep the vision, if you've gotten it in the heart, it'll affect your keeping the entire law. So <clears throat> what we could do today even is on our own, spend some time. I did last night again, just praying it through, thinking about the cross, and getting reacquainted with what he did and the depth of what he did for us. Let's bow our heads.